Immigration and Same-Sex Marriage. Today, Thursday, June 27th. This is The World. I'm Carol Hills, in for Marco Werman. The Senate's immigration reform bill would offer millions of undocumented immigrants a path to citizenship. Surprisingly, not all immigrants favor that. I think it would marginalize the experiences of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people who have immigrated to this country legally, including my family. Also, we look at what yesterday's Supreme Court rulings might mean for undocumented immigrants in same-sex marriages. You know, I'm hoping that our nightmare is over. And later, a young Brazilian student leader on where she sees the protests going, plus the art of worm charming. There is the twanging method. That's where you waggle a pitchfork back and forth quite vehemently. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Carol Hills, in for Marco Werman, and this is The World. The Senate has just approved a sweeping bipartisan immigration bill. A key part of it would offer undocumented immigrants an eventual path to citizenship. But not everyone supports the idea, and it's certain to face a tough fight once it gets to the House. Some of those opposed to a path to citizenship are immigrants themselves, and their views can be influenced by how they came to America. Jude Jaffe Block of the public radio collaboration Fronteras Desk has one immigrant family's story. On a recent evening in Tempe, Arizona, Alex Kasnovich plays the piano with his 24-year-old son, Mark. The elder Kasnovich learned to play the piano as a child in the former Soviet Union. There wasn't much on TV, he says. In the old country, we only had two channels on TV, and they didn't show anything worthwhile. But life was difficult under Soviet rule for Jewish families like his. When he was a teenager, Alex Kasnovich headed to Canada with his parents. Then an engineering job brought him to the U.S., and his young family, including his son Mark, settled here in Arizona in the 1990s. I think that the the United States is a country that is much more free and conducive for people to exercise uh, their individuality and their freedom of expression. Kaznovich is 50 with a full beard. He became a U.S. citizen after a long process. So now, when he's asked about immigration reform, he's concerned the bill the Senate just approved includes a path to citizenship for people who came illegally. It's just wrong to disregard when people do something that is against the law. He says his philosophy is rooted in his intense patriotism for his adopted country. One of the reasons that we always saw America as the bastion of freedom is because of uh, our belief that our laws are fair and that they're fairly applied to everybody. And his son Mark, who became a U.S. citizen as a teenager, agrees. I think it would marginalize the experiences of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have immigrated to this country legally, including my family. So we definitely don't want to throw people out who are living here, but we do not want to reward those who figure that they will bypass the process that's in place. They say instead of a path to citizenship, immigrants in the country without papers should get legal permanent residency. Mark Kasnovich says that's a fair compromise. 
if I was living in a terrible country, I would much rather have the option to live in America and not vote than not live in America. And I think that side isn't often made. But he adds that it's not always an easy position to articulate. People are quick to assume that if someone doesn't support this bill, then, then you know, they're labeled as racists or bigots or things like that. And he says he doesn't want to risk being misunderstood. For me, it's not an issue of persons of ethnicity or race, but it's just the principle. And it wouldn't matter to me what country they're illegally trying to immigrate from. I, I don't believe in illegal immigration. And yet the Kaznoviches say they don't see a place for themselves in the most visible grassroots efforts that oppose illegal immigration. Those groups, they say, tend to be more hostile to unauthorized immigrants than they are comfortable with. A lot of them talk about the exclusion and deportation and uh, uh, all of those things. And I, I think that there is a number of reasons why that is not a good option. We have neighbors and friends who, like, I don't ask them about their immigration status, but I don't want to see them being deported. I think these groups are, I mean, obviously they, they care about this issue, but I feel like they're more on the extreme side. And I think that there's, there's a middle ground that's not only compassionate, but is fair and, you know, is a more realistic approach. As the debate over immigration reform continues, it's still unclear whether this middle position the Kasnoviches agree with will emerge. For The World, I'm Jude Jaffe-Block, Phoenix. There's one group of immigrants that just got word that they now have a path to legal status here. These are immigrants married to U.S. citizens in same-sex unions. Their fortunes changed yesterday when the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. The ruling means that lesbian and gay Americans can now sponsor their foreign-born spouses for permanent residency status. We checked in with one married couple in the San Diego area. They asked that we not use their names because one of the women is here illegally. She's from El Salvador. Both women were ecstatic when they heard the news yesterday. I was so happy. We were yelling at the morning, and I was crying. I didn't know what to say. I feel like um, my life is a big change. You know, it's like uh, coming to the freedom, the real freedom, you know. So do you have any immediate plans? Or are you going to apply for a green card? Yeah, this is the first step. We have already an appointment with the lawyer, you know, expecting something good come for us. And I think we are ready to get a different life. What has it been like living on, as an undocumented worker, not being able to be recognized in your marriage? Yeah, that, that was so hard for me. And it's hard for me because I have to do jobs I don't want to do, but I have to do. I am graduated from my country. I have my talent. I have my skill, but I can use because I don't have a green card. You know, sometimes I had to clean house. You were cleaning houses. Was, yeah, I cleaning houses. And what would you like to do now? Is there a particular job you could really like to do now? Yeah, I am a export import expert. I am education and communication and public relations. Hmm, public so, relations or export import. Yeah, and also I am a computer, you know, I am... You have computer skills. Skill, you know, I am, let me tell you, I don't want to say, oh, I am a great person, you know, like that, but I type in 82 words per minute. That's a lot, 82 words per minute. Yeah, it's a lot, and and sometimes when I am in the college, my teacher say, get out, get out, you don't have to be here, but just joking, no joking. And so, I say, yes, I will pay another class. Don't worry, I am going to the next class. You know, but I can't because I am 
I don't have a green card, so... So that will I change now. Take... May I speak to your wife? Okay, okay. Thank you so much. Hi. Hi, I just wanted to ask you a few questions. You've been married since November, but uh, you've been together for the past three years. Um, how have you dealt with that sort of constant fear that, that your wife could be deported at any time? Well, it's been incredibly stressful. You know, uh, maybe your listeners are not familiar with San Diego area, but basically we have the border to the south. And then if you want to even leave the county, you have to go through one of two highways. And both of them have immigration checkpoints. Sometimes they're active, sometimes they're not. And so we've seldom left the county. But, for instance, she has a brother in Los Angeles that we want to go visit for the holidays. We have to go through a checkpoint. And if you've ever, like, been sitting in a car when they're stopping cars and thinking, you know, the person that you love can be taken from you, it's uh, it's incredibly stressful. It's horrible. It's really mm-hmm. horrible. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that our nightmare is over because uh, even uh, in San Diego, um, immigration is everywhere. So sometimes when my partner is doesn't come home, I wonder what she picked up on the train, what she picked up on the bus. It's um, it's it's very stressful and uh, it's it's terrible, really. It's been terrible. Well, we want to wish the best of luck to both of you, and thank you both for speaking to us. Oh, thank you. We spoke with a lesbian married couple in the San Diego area about how the Supreme Court ruling against the Defense of Marriage Act changed their lives. Find out more about our ongoing Global Nation coverage of stories about a changing America and its people. That's all at theworld.org slash global nation. And be sure to add your voice. We're following the conversation on Twitter. Just include the hashtag global nation. President Obama learned of the Supreme Court's decisions on gay marriage while en route to Senegal. The West African nation, like many in the sub-Saharan region, has made homosexuality a criminal offense. Today at his press conference in Senegal, Obama called for equal rights for gays in Africa. His host, Senegalese President Macky Sall, had a different point of view. He said, quote, We are not homophobic. Gays are not persecuted. But for now, they must accept the choices of other Senegalese, end quote. Despite that disagreement, many Senegalese are excited about Obama's visit. That's according to Katie, an artist in Dakar who, believe it or not, raps the news on Senegalese TV. Yeah, I think emotionally it's wonderful knowing his background, uh, his origins. It's just wonderful to have him here. I think generally Senegalese people are excited about this visit. I was struck by the fact that uh, one of the first things President Obama talked about today was gay rights. Of course, it comes just a day after our Supreme Court made its big ruling on same-sex marriage. What do you think about his comments? I think his, his comments were really in the right direction. And Senegalese people really um, had a, quite a debate before he arrived here whether he's going to talk about gay rights or not, because um, the majority of Senegalese people are not really supporting gay rights. But in the meantime, that's what President Sal said. There's no homophobia in Senegal. It's just because of, of our cultural background, of our religious background, that pe- the people here are not ready for it. So you mentioned gay rights even before he, he got here. We did. Because, as I said, Senegalese people were really expecting it. Even before he was here, there was quite a debate out in the street, like, yeah, we're sure Obama's coming to talk about gay rights. Did it kind of chafe at you or other Senegalese that that President Obama even raised it? I mean, you mentioned there was kind of debate about 
whether he would is is did, is it sort of an uncomfortable thing to even talk about in Senegal? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, there's already been debates about homosexuality because uh, Senegalese people are really particular in the sense that they're really open-minded. And I think with time, we're going to have a more serious debate about it. Katie, I'm wondering, just moving to a different topic, I'm wondering why you why you wrap the news? Because it needed to be done. It needed to be done since the news only given by, by the media here uh, the medias, and we all know that each group of media um, got their own interests, and there's always quite a line to follow uh, whenever uh, the news come 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 in. There's a lot of things which are not explained to Senegalese people, because let's not forget that we are in a country where uh, most of the people didn't go to school, and uh, in regards to that, most of the concept which are debated um, are not really clear to the people. And since uh, we as rappers um, are supposed to be uh, part of the people, um, we've taken the responsibility to kind of break down what it is about. That's exactly what what we're doing with this with this journal rapé. So you think rap is sort of the right kind of vehicle to convey certain issues? For the moment, for the moment, it really is for Senegal because the press in Senegal uh, has, since some years, uh, has really gone into uh, people. Uh, it's, it's, it's only about about the stars, about music, which kind of robe did she wear? So uh, sort of celebrity stuff. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And the people are much more interested into those things. And we might regret it in 10 years, in 15 years, because um, some decisions are made, some laws are voted, and people are not even getting interested into those laws. Katie is a Senegalese rapper. He raps the news on TV in Senegal. His program is called Journal Rappé. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Carol. Bienvenue, installez-vous, on a des nouvelles pour vous. Y'a des bonnes, y'a des mauvaises, mais y'a des nouvelles pour vous. Bienvenue, installez-vous, on a des nouvelles pour vous. Y'a des bonnes, y'a des mauvaises, mais y'a des nouvelles pour vous. On a beau parler de démocratie, de liberté d'expression, on sait que la souris ne tire pas sur les moustaches du lion. Mais ceci dit, pourquoi le fisc veut fermer la mine de Sidi et bloquer ses comptes Le mot la bénéficie this is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Carol Hills, and this is The World. President Obama is in Senegal today on the first stop in his week-long visit to Africa. The trip is meant to highlight the U.S.'s commitment to, to democracy and economic engagement on the rapidly changing continent. Many African economies have been among the fastest growing in the world recently. But food production there is still a big concern, and climate change is only increasing the challenge. That's one reason there's growing interest in new approaches to agriculture that are both productive and sustainable. Today, in the latest chapter in our What's for Lunch series on food and climate change, John Miller brings us the story of one Ugandan entrepreneur. He's become an evangelist for a low-tech but super-efficient system for producing fish and vegetables. It's called aquaponics. This is our system, one of the systems. Charles Mulamata fell hard for aquaponics while poking around online after his attempt to start a fish farm failed. 
it was love at first sight for a small businessman slash engineer slash serial tinkerer. And this is a siphon that we have fabricated out of the mineral water bottle. And this is a perfume bottle. So we tried to make this as simple as possible. Mulamatas converted the narrow courtyard between his house and his office in Kampala into a makeshift aquaponics laboratory, a thicket of blue plastic pipes and black plastic tanks and wooden troughs filled with gravel. Showing it off, he is clearly in his element. The water comes through this pipe, goes round and round, and it forms a vortex which forces the solids down, and then the clean but nutrient-rich water goes to the sump tank. Aquaponics is the marriage of aquaculture, or fish farming, and hydroponics, vegetable farming without soil. The fish fertilize the water for the vegetables, and the vegetables filter the water for the fish. It's almost a closed loop. You do need to feed the fish, in this case native tilapia, and you need to do something with their solid waste. You also need to pump the water from the bottom back to the top. But aquaponics uses 90% less water than conventional fish ponds, and the plants grow much faster and need much less space than they would in the soil. It's also nearly climate-proof, since it doesn't really rely on the weather. And just as important for a place like Uganda, it provides two income streams. Fish farming in this country has been problematic because by the time they are through feeding the fish, they don't have any profits left. The secret of this system is we have the vegetables. These vegetables can be harvested on a monthly basis. By the time you come to nine months, you're already sustaining yourself. So fish income comes in as a bonus, as a wonderful bonus. Mulamata says a well-designed system should break even in less than a year. At least that's what his calculations tell him. Trouble is, hardly anyone's actually doing it here. His own setup is experimental. His place is too small for a full-sized vegetable bed. He recently installed a bigger system for a neighbor, but she hasn't harvested the fish yet. What Mulamata really needs to get things rolling, he says, is cash. We have the technology. We have demonstrated it is viable. I don't have the money. Mulamata says there are two big reasons aquaponics hasn't caught on yet in Uganda. The first is the startup cost. Second is that it requires some training. So he's come up with a plan. Let us talk about the association. We need you people to come behind us. So that On a sunny afternoon, Mulamata hosts an open house for what he calls the Africa Aquaponics Association. His goal is to recruit investors for a micro-franchise scheme where they put up some money and Mulamata and his team help plan and finance and manage their systems. We design a system for you. His will be different from him, it will be different from him. That's why we have an association. About 25 people show up, including an official from the Department of Fisheries who makes a speech pledging support. Several attendees say they're strongly considering taking the plunge. When it's over, Mulamata is giddy. This has been successful beyond my dream. I spend time with Mulamata over the next few days. We drive out to the countryside where he hopes to build an aquaponics facility on half an acre he owns with his wife. And back in Kampala, we meet with a high-ranking government official who sounds genuinely enthusiastic. Wow, that is more than I'd expected. There seems to be momentum, but nothing in Uganda moves fast. In the meantime, a guy's got to eat. 
One afternoon, Mulamata scoops a tilapia from one of his tanks, and his wife Joyce plucks some greens from one of their troughs. An hour later, I'm summoned to the dining room. What an amazing feast you've prepared. You have got bananas here, and you've got rice, and fish, and this is peanut soup. Plus a Chinese cabbage salad, and sliced avocados, and freshly squeezed passion fruit juice. Wow, that's really good. All week, Charles Mulamata's been telling me how badly Uganda needs aquaponics and what a smart investment it is, which makes me curious. How much of your motivation is as a businessman, entrepreneur, and how much is as an idealistic Ugandan? (laughs) I can put it at 50-50. Half businessman, half idealist. Maybe, just maybe, the formula this technology needs. A quick postscript. Not long after I visited Charles Mulamata, he emailed me to say he'd landed a contract to build an aquaponic system for a local nonprofit. It's a welcome injection of cash, but more importantly, it's a chance to build his first fully functional facility. Because with aquaponics, Mulamata says, once you see it, you can't help but fall in love with it. For the world, I'm John Miller, Kampala, Uganda. Our What's for Lunch series is part of Food for Nine Billion, a project of Homelands Productions and the Center for Investigative Reporting, in partnership with the PBS NewsHour and American Public Media's Marketplace. As part of our summer-long look at how the environment is impacting our food, we've been asking for your help. Is climate change affecting what you're choosing to eat? From sustainable sushi to your new backyard garden. Send us a picture on Instagram and use the hashtag What's for Lunch. That's what's, the number four, lunch. And speaking of what's for lunch, here's our food-related geo-quiz today. Suppose we're in a cafe in Atlantic Canada, and it's serving fresh, raw oysters for lunch today, along with scallops on the half-shell from the Northumberland Strait. That waterway separates Prince Edward Island and Cape Breton. Also on offer, shrimp caught in Chukbata Bay off the northern coast of Nova Scotia. They're beautiful. They're really nice. They're so sweet and um, the shells are so um, thin that uh, I actually just deep fry them or flash fry them and eat them whole. Head on, tail on, everything. That's the chef at the Shack Oyster Bar in the waterfront Canadian city we want you to name. We'll check in with her in a few minutes. First, name the city, which is also the provincial capital of Nova Scotia. Tomorrow on The World, Mexican-American journalist Alfredo Corchado describes what it's like to cover the drug war and straddle two cultures. You know, even though my mother, when we left Mexico, said, you know, Mexico is our burden, not yours. You need to look forward in the United States. You see how they never really gave up on their homeland. They still believe in the homeland. Journalist and author Alfredo Corchado on staying loyal to Mexico while covering the drug war there. That's tomorrow, right here on The World. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International.
I'm Carol Hills. Ahead, Brazil's protests in the words of a young student leader. And later, the secret to charming worms out of the ground. What the organizers of the Worm Charming Championships say is that the key to winning is to create this, I quote, massive vibrational experience. That's what a worm responds to. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Carol Hills in for Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Soccer and protests are mixing again in Brazil. Today, thousands took to the streets in Fortaleza, one of the Brazilian cities that will host next year's Soccer World Cup. The protesters are angry about the government paying billions of dollars in preparation for the World Cup, while underfunded agencies deliver poor basic services to the public. Many other issues, including police brutality and government Government corruption have been raised by the protests over the past two weeks, but the demonstrators have struggled to narrow down their demands and goals. Earlier this week, thousands of activists gathered in Rio de Janeiro for a strategy session. Producer Catherine Osborne joined one of them, a student leader, for the car ride home afterwards. Here's that student's explanation of what's going on in Brazil in her own words. Well, my name is Gabriela Machado. I'm 17 years old, and I am one of the one of the people that is in front of all the movement. Our focus is for transporting 100% public, free and with quality. The democratization of the media. We are we want this the democratization of the media. The the Brazilian people wake waked up, they get out of their house to protest something, they live with, like, forever. So I would say that we are in this energy that it's trying to have a new government with less corruption, a government for the people. And I would say for the international world that don't come to the World Cup. We need a, a revolution first in thoughts and after in the streets. But if we invert this process, it's okay to we get there in the same way. The Brazilian people, they now, they don't have um, a big view of Politics, And I think with all these acts all over the country, the people, the Brazilian, they start to care more about, the, care more about politics and who is the government. And they start to follow and agreed and disagreed. I'm one now that the Brazilian people manifest themselves in the thoughts and in, in the speak. I think that's what we need now.
That was student protest leader Gabriela Machado in Rio de Janeiro speaking to producer Catherine Osborne. In Rio, one of the things the protesters are most angry about is the city's plan to clean up its slums or favelas ahead of next year's World Cup and the Olympics in 2016. Part of the plan involves evicting longtime squatters who often have no place else to go. But there is a good side to the plan. For some residents, it's meant a vast improvement in their living conditions. The world's Jason Margolis visited one of Rio's favelas called Babylonia just before the protests in Brazil began. Copacabana is the good life in Rio. Postcard beaches, seaside cafes, bars, and nightclubs. Venture up into the hills, though, just a few blocks away on a steep, curvy road, and you're in a different world. Babylonia is one of the city's oldest favelas. About 3,000 people live here. Their homes, built into the steep hillside, look like they could fall into the ocean at any moment. Mudslides are a problem in Rio's favelas, as is inadequate sewage and a culture of drug violence. Two years ago, though, the city began revitalizing Babylonia. City engineer Mauricio Toshtish is in charge of the project. Toshtish points to a new playground where children are playing in the center of town. He says this area had been used as an impromptu garbage dump. The city is also putting in a community center and proper sewage. Babylonia is an experimental green favela, with vegetation being added to help prevent soil erosion and mudslides and beautify the neighborhood. Locals are being hired as gardeners. Toshchish is also tearing down unstable houses. The city compensates the displaced homeowners, relocates them to newly built apartments, or moves them to another community entirely. It's up to them to choose. Toshchish looks at a home clinging to the hillside. He's ripping it down to expand a road that can accommodate cars and trucks. Currently, only motorcycles can fit through. It's all part of an overall plan to integrate Rio's favelas with the rest of the city. The challenge is to carry out urban development with quality of life, promoting urbanization with social inclusion in practice, counting on the community's active participation in decisions that will certainly change many lives for the better. But before the engineers can come in and do their work, the police arrive. The state of Rio de Janeiro sends in pacifying units. They announce they're coming in a few days beforehand, and the drug dealers move out. This helps prevent a showdown. That's how it worked in Babylonia. Carlos Antonio Pereira is the president of the community here. The security here has given the people of this community dignified living conditions. We were abandoned for many years. Then the government had the courage to come in and do something about it. A few cops with big guns have also remained behind. John Carlos, a youth soccer coach, says they're welcome here. He was hanging out at the town barbershop, three stools and a mirror on the side of the road. He says the changes here are excellent. Kids can play on the streets until late at night and don't have to worry about stray bullets. Not everyone seems as satisfied with all the changes, though. When we were walking, one woman confronted city engineer Antonio Toshtish. The woman was saying her son has the rights to the land that Toshtish had cleared to make room for the service road. Toshtish told her to take it up with the mayor's office. I asked Toshtish if this happens a lot. Yes, he says. But he shrugs and says the mayor's office has already paid the family to relocate. Now the woman just wants more money. Toshtish later joked that half the people here love him and half hate him. 
Bruno Suzo Santush is in the second group. He lives in a favela northwest of the city. He says his community is suffering because of the improvements in places like Babylonia. He says when the police announce they're moving in, the drug lords pick up and move down the road to other places like his favela. In the next breath, though, he says he'd welcome the police in his neighborhood, but they haven't arrived yet. Back in Babylonia, 74-year-old Zilda Dacuña Martins loves the changes she's seen. She just moved into a new two-bedroom apartment with reliable running water for the first time in her life. I'm very, very, very happy. I used to live in a big house. It was a good house, but it was falling apart and we couldn't afford to repair it. When this chance came up, as we say in Portuguese, we hugged the opportunity. Almost one and a half million people live in Rio's favelas. The city of Rio has set a goal of revitalizing all of the favelas by the year 2020. Given the current unrest, they might need to speed up their efforts. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. President Obama offered up a memorable quote today. He said he wasn't going to scramble any jet fighters to go after a 29-year-old hacker. That was a reference to Edward Snowden, whose leaks exposed the government's secret surveillance programs. But the U.S. still wants Snowden extradited from, well, wherever he is. Our resident history buff Chris Wolf was digging into the Snowden case and stumbled across some interesting stuff about extraditions, starting with the oldest extradition treaty in the world. Well, it's the oldest documented treaty between Egypt, ancient Egypt, and another Middle Eastern superpower, the Hittite Empire. And it goes back more than 3,000 years. There's some dispute amongst the experts, but it's dated by most scholars at about 1259 BC, part of a bigger treaty of alliance between these two great powers that dominated the region at the time. So who was trying to extradite whom in this case? Uh, Well, the clause in the treaty applied to political refugees and to criminals. So it looks like Edward Snowden would have been in a bit of trouble. Uh, Most modern extradition treaties have an exclusion for political refugees. Uh, But back then, uh, if Edward Snowden had been in trouble with the Hittites, they would have been able to get him back from Egypt and uh, presumably would have met a nasty death under the uh, kind of legal systems of the time. So do we know whether that extradition treaty between ancient Egypt and the Hittites, did it actually work? And there's documents that they extradited their Hittites back and so on and so forth. Can you tell? Well, it's obviously a long time ago, so not much uh, documentation about oh, individual on. cases has su- <laughs> survived. But the uh, treaty was the foundation of an alliance that lasted about 100 years. So you can imagine that could well have been people in trouble at the time. So what was this case about involving the Hittites and ancient Egyptians? Well, they hadn't been getting along. There had been war on and off for 100 years. There was a huge battle at a place called Kadesh, which is believed to be near the city of Homs in Syria. Another battle taking place there now, of course. Um, And the uh, two empires had figured out by themselves that they had bigger enemies to face. So it was basically an alliance to end their own conflict and start working together against their other enemies on their other frontiers. So you said this was the oldest documented extradition treaty. Where are these documents now? Well, they're documents in the loose sense that they are surviving historical records, but they're actually like carved in stone in Egypt's Karnak uh, temple complex near modern uh, Luxor, the tomb of the great pharaoh Ramesses II. 
that's actually carved into his mausoleum. That's been known for a long, long time. And then just a little over 100 years ago, uh, the Hittite version was found during an archaeological dig in what's now modern Turkey, where they survived on baked tablets, which are now on display in Istanbul's Archaeological Museum. And interestingly, a copy was made and put into the United Nations building to symbolize in New York, to symbolize peace and brotherhood amongst the nations. By the way, when did the U.S. make its first extradition treaty? Well, the first explicit treaty was, ironically, with Ecuador. Ironic because um, Ecuador is the country that has, uh, or is at least looking into, taking Edward Snowden into asylum. Uh, There were clauses in other treaties that are a little older, for example, the first one being with the UK in 1794. But the first explicit extradition treaty was with Ecuador in 1872. The world's history editor, Chris Wolfe. Thanks. Pleasure. Edward Snowden is supposedly still in the transit lounge at Moscow's Shemetyevo airport. At least that's what Russian authorities keep saying. They also say that Snowden is free to go and that the sooner this happens, the better. That prompted us to ask you to share your memories of Shemetyevo airport. Lisa Lamb from California by way of London did that. She remembers being in the airport's transit lounge when she was a kid. It was incredibly dreary and boring. But on the upside, um, I did find a stray kitten in the lounge, which uh, kept me entertained for some of the time that we were there. Apparently, you never know what you'll find at the Moscow airport. Have you spent quality time at Sheremetyevo Airport? Tell us your story at theworld.org. Just look for the orange record button. Let's head now to eastern Canada for the answer to our geo-quiz. Remember, we asked you to name a waterfront city in Nova Scotia. That would be Halifax. And earlier today, as part of our What's for Lunch series about food and climate change, we called up a chef there, literally to find out what was on her lunch menu. Renee Lavallee is in charge at the Shack Oyster Bar in Halifax. Hi, Renee. Hi there, how are you? So what is for lunch? Well, today, obviously, we have uh, raw oysters from Black Point up in uh, Pictou County from, in Nova Scotia. But uh, today we're having uh, actually bay scallops on the half shelf for lunch. Ooh, and what bay are they from? They're also from Black Point. All of our seafood, all of our shellfish comes from the North Emberland Strait between PEI and Cape Breton. So I know you're really into local food. How do you choose your seafood in sort of the responsible local way? Well, we make sure that, first of all, everything's sustainable. We don't serve anything here that uh, is otherwise. And then our lobster and our cra- and our snow crab come from Cape Breton. You've blogged about Chetabucto Bay trap-caught shrimp. Yeah. What are they like? They're beautiful. They're um, a really beautiful, sweet shrimp. They're sustainably caught, and they're really nice. They're so sweet, and um, the shells are so um, thin that uh, I actually just deep fry them or flash fry them and eat them whole, head on, tail on, everything. Renee, any seasonal vegetables you're featuring? Right now, actually, we have rams and we have garlic scapes, so both of them uh, we have. What are the first one you mentioned, rams? Rams, it's a, a wild leaf. Oh. They're greens. They do have really beautiful leafy greens, which can be chopped up, often sautéed, which are really nice. Uh, Their bottoms are really good to be pickled and uh, to be used in pestos or to be roasted. They're very mild, like a mild mix between a a leek and garlic. I know you're into fiddleheads, those green little creatures. They kind of look like a curled-up caterpillar. Are fiddleheads one of those in-season ingredients you, you strive to offer? We often do, um, and what we like to do is we'll buy them as many pounds as we can from the foragers in the area, and what we'll do is we'll pickle them and use them later on in the season with our crab and lobster roll 
or we will uh, use them and make a presto that we'll use then again with our steamed mussels, our steamed clams. So you're a big proponent of seasonal and local. Is it about supporting local businesses or climate change or a combination of the two? I think it's a combination of both, but I believe that the more that I support local, the more that the locals will support me. And a lot of the farmers and the suppliers are friends of mine, and I believe in what they do. And I, I like to promote, they can see what amazing things they're doing as well. So it's just a circle of all of us helping each other out. So I pat your back, you, help, you pat mine, and uh, in the end, it's, uh, it works out for everybody. So we've talked about what you're serving your customers today. What what are you having for lunch yourself? What am I having for lunch? Well, I'm uh, doing service right now, and then I've got a dinner, two dinners tonight. So if I can manage to slurp down a few dozen oysters, that'll probably be my lunch today. Sounds great. Renee Lavallee speaking to us from Halifax, the answer to our geo quiz about what's for lunch. It's great to talk to you. I'll let you get back to your lunch. Thank you for having me on. This is The World on PRI. I'm Carol Hills. This is The World. We haven't been hearing much from Egypt lately, but we will this weekend when Egyptians, frustrated with their government, are planning to take to the streets in protest. They are calling it President Mohamed Morsi's last day in office. Morsi, who is Egypt's first Islamic president, came into power promising major economic and social changes. Now, a year later, he faces discontent. Morsi tried to address that in a speech on state TV yesterday. I did my best with the loyal people of this nation to evaluate the situation. I was right in some cases and wrong in other cases. But that didn't seem to calm his critics. Financial Times' Borzu Daragahi is in Cairo now and has been watching this closely. And Borzu, tell us briefly what's happened in this first year that's made so many Egyptians so angry. Well, briefly, uh, nothing has happened. Uh, The economy hasn't improved. Uh, The uh, uh, state of the infrastructure hasn't improved. The uh, various public institutions haven't improved at all and have gotten worse in many ways, um, as has the economy. Uh, And meanwhile, there's this perception that... uh, Uh, Mohamed Morsi, uh, with a uh, slim, uh, very narrow majority that he uh, gained in last year's presidential elections, largely due to uh, secular uh, Egyptians and liberals and leftists holding their nose and and voting for him over the the other guy, who is a sort of pro-regime stalwart, uh, that with this slim majority, uh, uh, Mohamed Morsi and his allies in various Islamist uh, uh, groups and movements are trying to uh, Islamicize the society. They're trying to put their own people in key positions and uh, change Egypt's uh, cultural identity. Now, Morsi's struck back. He's saying he's working in this poisonous environment. What does he mean by that? I think that he's got a point to some extent in that the country has become so polarized that no one trusts anything he says. Um, But I I, I think it is a very poisonous environment, and I think that the opposition has made a lot of mistakes. But the the main reason uh, for the poisonous environment is Morsi himself and the many uh, mistakes that he has made. Uh, Key among them uh, last year when he uh, made a sort of constitutional declaration out of nowhere, uh, declaring all these powers for himself. Um, This just really uh, pushed people over the edge. 
Has he done anything to relinquish any of those powers? I remember at the time he said, oh, this is temporary. No, he did. I mean, he, he pretty much uh, uh, said, uh, my bad. But by then, there was a, you know, no one trusted him too much in the first place. But at that point, there was just a, a deep suspicion about what uh, Mohamed Morsi's agenda was, uh, what the agenda of his allies were. Uh, and, and those uh, um, suspicions have only been reinforced by other actions that, have, that they've taken over the last year. So is, is the opposition pretty unified? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, they're a total mess, too. And I think that's one of the reasons that uh, many in the international community have doubts about this protest coming up on Sunday. Um, so what if they are successful? What if they do bring down the, the government of Mohamed Morsi? What then? What will be the alternative? Who will take over? Just one quick question about Sunday's demonstration or protest. Is there a way for protesters to sort of force the end of, of Morsi's term, or is it just kind of rhetoric and but but there's going to be a lot of people out there. I'm, I'm trying to get a reading on, on sort of the level of this protest and what it really means. You know, it's hard to say. There is no roadmap going forward after this protest. There is no mechanism for these protests to lead to uh, the end of uh, Morsi's reign. Morsi was democratically elected. Uh, he does have international legitimacy and he does have his supporters. So I don't, I don't see the end game. And a lot of analysts that I speak to don't see the end game uh, in these protests. Um, there's also a problem. People are anticipating huge numbers of people showing up, but they're also anticipating a lot of violence. And I've spoken to a lot of people, let's call them swing protesters. Sometimes they show up at Tahrir Square for big protests. Sometimes they uh, refuse to show up because of the fear of violence and so on. I think a lot of these swing protesters aren't going to show up uh, come Sunday uh, because they're not there to get hurt. They believe still in peaceful political activism, and they don't want to be throwing rocks and inhaling tear gas all day. Borzu Dargahi is with the Financial Times. He's been speaking to us from Cairo. Thanks, Borzu. Always a pleasure. We want to end our program today on a lighter note, and I have just the right person here in the studio for that. Hello, Carol. Hey, Patrick. It's the language editor of the world, Patrick Cox. I'm here to tell you about worm charming. Okay. you got to give me a hint here, because I've got an image, but I'm not sure it's correct. Worm charming is all about getting worms to come out of the ground. So real worms. This isn't some metaphor. No, no. You are charming the worms out of the ground. What you're doing is you're making the worms think. I suppose, assuming that worms think, um, <laughs> you're making worms think that it is raining. Hmm. So they'll come up to the surface. So sort of like snake charming, but it's worms. And it has a different purpose. Yeah, I, I suppose it's a bit like snake charming. There are methods for doing this. There is the twanging method. Oh, come on. Yes. That's where you uh, waggle a pitchfork back and forth quite vehemently. And then there is also a method known as twickling. <laughs> Come on. And that's where you rotate the pitchfork. And they just had the World Worm Charming Championships in Cheshire in England. Is this one of those like Guinness Book of World Records? We're going to think of something weird and wacky and, and, and give it legitimacy? No, this is there is a worm charming community. At the World Championships, they had participants from the Philippines, from Australia, from India. Uh, they have other competitions from time to time in, in Canada and Florida. Worm charming is, is so a legitimate out, sport. Did this come out of something practical, like farmers do this anyway, or are they just this is just some sort of thing that we like to do and charm the worms out of the, of the ground? Well, maybe I should answer that question by telling you that the world record holder is a 10-year-old. <laughs> Her name is Sophie Smith. She, she won the record two years ago. In half an hour, she charmed 
567 worms out of the ground. Good Lord. Is she in Britain? She's British. But what the organizers of the Worm Charming Championships say is that the key to winning is to create this, I quote, massive vibrational experience. That's what a worm responds to. Patrick Cox, the world's language editor, always with an interesting thing to tell me about. Thanks, Patrick. You're very welcome, Carol. And if you go to theworld.org, we've got a bunch of pictures from the World Worm Charming Championships. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Just because I eat worms. Short, fat, airy ones. Long, tall, skinny ones. See how the little ones squirm. Bite all their heads off, suck all the juice out, throw the empty skins away. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me, cause I eat worms all day. British band The Yobs end our show today from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Carol Hills. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art, by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.